This is They Create Worlds, episode 48, Driving Games and Technology. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, Alex, we have to get into the car. Into the car? Are we going someplace? We're going all over the land. Over Mario World. Over Gran Turismo. Sometimes we might even just go cruising the USA. Ah, we must be talking about driving games. Yes, driving games. I get to drive constantly, usually poorly, like that one on the Super Nintendo. The Duel. Test Drive 2. Ah, yes. That was fun. Got to ruin people's Christmas vacation by driving in the wrong lane of traffic. That does not sound safe. Probably isn't. Somehow, the nice people at the DMV gave me a driver's license. That sounds somewhat irresponsible. Quite possibly. But at least it was all in the video game. Keep in mind, video games can't hurt people. Not sure that's entirely true, Jeff. Uh Uh-oh. We're doomed. But yes, the driving game is an interesting genre, still around, of course, though I don't think quite as important as it used to be, it's fair to say. But it's often been the genre where new graphical technology gets displayed first, and I think that's a combination of things. I mean, first, it's an interesting genre to show off new advancements in smooth motion and animation and speed, because the thing that makes most driving games exciting is that pure sense of speed that you get when you play them. The other side of that, especially when you move into the 3D uh, polygonal days and whatnot, is that a car is a relatively easy thing to animate. There are very few moving parts on the outside of a car. So unlike, say, a person, which when you first start animating them in 3D or whatnot look like some kind of Lovecraftian horror of many angles, Cars are a little more manageable to get into somewhat recognizable shape, though obviously the first polygonal cars were not that much better than the first polygonal people when it came to realism. That's true. It's something that has really sold a lot of video games Mm -hmm. and something that has sold a lot of consoles. We talked before about beat-em-ups really selling consoles. Absolutely. Fighters really selling consoles. today. Think about it. Open world environment really showcases the technology and where it is. And that is why so many open world games push and sell consoles. Mm-hmm. You think the Switch would be selling like hotcakes without Breath of the Wild? Certainly not. <laughs> and of course, the next big game that's coming is the new Mario, Mario Odyssey. And that's another game that looks like it's going to be pretty darn open world. So. But during the period of time when that was still a bit of a stretch for a console to do, particularly in 3D, the driving game was one of the best ways to show off your latest advances in speed and processing power in terms of how fast things are going, in terms of sophistication of the AI opponents, in terms of how pretty your textures look, how pretty your lighting looks. It was a pretty good way to showcase. And so it's often been at the forefront of the technology, and particularly, I think, in the early 3D era, it was even, like you said, one of the major 
system sellers. The best-selling game in Europe when the PlayStation first came out was Wipeout, a racing game, and the best-selling game of all time on the PlayStation is the original Gran Turismo. So that's definitely something that was very important to the success of that console. So we're going to cover the technology of the entire racing genre. Mm -hmm. When did we first get something that we could really call a racing game? Well, in all fairness, this really predates video games. Really? You really have to start with coin-operated amusements generally when you talk about driving games, because the very first driving video games, as we will see, are in part derived from the electromechanical coin-op, and in one case, even pen and paper games that came before video games even existed. So this is one of those things that was already something of an arcade staple. The very first arcade driving games appeared in the 1930s, and they appeared in Great Britain. Particularly in the very early days of the coin-op industry, many of the advances appeared in Britain first, just because they were a little bit ahead in terms of industrialization and industrial technology, and so they were always just a little bit ahead in terms of adapting this electromechanical technology to something new. The, the first light gun was patented by an Englishman, for instance. Uh, the first electric rifle shooting games were done in Britain. A lot of the firsts were over there, and that was true of driving games as well. And these early driving games, the way they mostly worked is you would have a rotating barrel, essentially, with scenery painted on it. There'd be a road painted on it, another scenery painted on it, and the road would undulate a bit. It wouldn't be a straight road. And you would have a model of a car kind of positioned on top of that barrel. And your steering wheel would move the car left and right. And so the system, uh, through wipers and contacts, presumably, was able to sense if your car ended up going off the road either way. And so you would use your steering wheel to keep it on the road, and the longer you kept it on the road, the more points you would score in a time limit kind of thing. This was kind of the very first driving games. This model of driving game first came to the United States in 1941 with a game called Drivemobile. Drivemobile is often on the internet listed as the very first arcade driving game because it's American, and the American manufacturers are bigger manufacturers, and the American games tend to get a lot more attention, so people have kind of missed these early British games, myself included. On my blog and my coin-op stuff, I originally had Drivemobile as the first game, and then a British collector that's big on one of the British coin-op boards was like, no, 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 here's, here's what the first ones were, and, you know, send along some documentation, of course. So I was guilty of that as well. But Drivemobile was the first American game. It was the same. It used this rotating drum method. The twist in Drivemobile, which the earlier British games didn't have, it had the conceit that you were driving across the United States. So you kind of had an end goal. There, there was a back glass on it that would light up various portions on a map of the United States as you stayed on the road longer. So it was just, you know, at arbitrary point values or whatever would ding, light up, saying you've made it as far as Kansas City, just uh, to pick one. or or whatever, and you would try to traverse the entire country by keeping your car on this road. Though obviously, the terrain's not changing to reflect different parts of the country. You've just got this one rotating wheel. So Drivemobile was a big hit, and there were a few similar games like it. There were also a few games that used slot cars, like in a toy racing set, that came out as well. The really 
big evolution in electromechanical driving games, and I think it's one we talked about before in our arcade episode, was the speedway setup of doing one of these games where you used rear projection, where you had some cellophane that had some kind of course on it, and you used rear projection to display that. You would backlight the cellophane and it would display, you know, nice and big on the on the quote unquote screen. It wasn't a monitor, obviously. These are not video games. And then you would have individual cars on painted discs or something similar like that so that these discs or cars would spin around on the map and they could potentially collide with each other. So this gave you the capability of having some really kind of cool looking painted scenery to go through. And then also have the ability to have other cars on the track that you had to avoid in order to move forward. There's actually a Japanese company called Casco that did the very first one of these kinds of games. And then Chicago Coin, an American company, copied that to create Speedway. Speedway was a massive hit. I believe we did talk about that in our arcade episode. In 1969, when it came out, it sold over 10,000 units, which in that period of time, was ridiculously outstanding for an arcade game. Then there were a few other games kind of like this, done both in Japan and the United States. Sega and Taito got in on doing the same kinds of things in Japan. Allied Leisure, Midway, etc. got into the same kind of things in the United States. This made driving games one of the really hottest of the hot things in the arcade. There had been games that did okay before that, but they were never kind of the big thing in the arcade. They weren't a big drawer. Exactly. During this time period, though, 69, 68, 69, 70, 71, this was really one of the super huge things in the industry. So by the time video games are coming along, Pong 72, but Pong doesn't really hit big until 73, driving games are already a big thing in the arcade. That's a pretty darn obvious thing, then, to want to convert into video, because that's a very complex kind of wonky cabinet setup to do these elaborate driving games, because you have these projectors going, you have these film strips going, these discs spinning around, wipers and contacts to keep track of everything. That's a very complex piece of hardware. Not to mention a lot of maintenance. Exactly. If you have wiper contact, you have all this moving part. The Mm. more moving parts you have, the more maintenance, the more prone to breakdown, the more prone to problems. Exactly. Allied Leisure had one that was a big hit called Wild Cycle that was a motorcycle game. Actually, one of the first games to have a real soundtrack. It had an eight-track player built into it and used that for a soundtrack. It sold well, but it broke down all the time. I mean, they were just having to apologize left and right because these things were out of service so often. So, I mean, the driving games were huge, but they had their problems. So this was an obvious place where video could replicate some of the same capability, but without all the service headaches. Driving games were the first video games where you really had to solve the problem of how are we going to do graphics, real graphics in a video game. Pong games are just rectangles. That's all they are. Rectangles for the paddles, square for the ball. And even though you keep score on screen, if you look at those scores closely, you'll see it's just they're angular because they're just a bunch of squares slash rectangles all stitched together to create a score. They There's no... Very much like a digital clock. Right. There's no graphical memory. So they don't 
those numbers, images of those numbers are not actually housed in memory. What they do is they just plot out each individual block, and that's why those early scores look so blocky. So there were no graphics per se. The beam was just hitting certain parts of the screen and drawing dots on certain parts of the screen, and you kind of stitched those together into balls and paddles and, and numbers. Computer Space, the very first video arcade game, of course, did have objects that were rendered that were not just simple squares. It had a spaceship and two flying saucers. But because there were just a couple of elements, since those were the only graphical elements on the screen, they were able to get away with using diodes as a form of memory. So each dot that made up the outline of that spaceship or that flying saucer was stored in a diode on the circuit board. And then they used mirroring. So you didn't have to do every single dot and every single rotation of the dot in order to get everything on the screen. You could do four basic setups or whatever and then mirror those uh, because they were all symmetrical shapes and you got your full thing. That had a form of memory, so to speak, but it was just a few diodes soldered to a board. That's about as primitive a form of memory as you can possibly get, computer memory. Speed Race, uh, Atari's second game, was similar. There was, that was a racing game. I wouldn't call it a driving game because it's kind of a racing game in space where you had to have these two rocket ships. But again, all they did was they soldered some diodes to the board. There was not really memory in there in the way that we think of memory today. But when it came time to do a driving game, you needed to represent an entire driving course on the screen. And you needed to represent a race car on the screen. That was a little bit too much to do in diodes. (laughs) That had been a heck of a lot of diodes on the board to represent all of that. Atari's first driving game and the first driving game in the industry, Grand Track 10, was also the first video game to actually include a memory chip on the board. It had read-only memory, a ROM. They did that so that they could store an entire race course, and then they could store the car and all the rotations of the car in memory so that it would just draw all of these objects on the screen, the this cathode ray tube would, based on data housed in memory instead of these other more primitive forms of direct commands. This first driving game was done by Cyan Engineering. We've talked about Cyan, of course. We just had a whole chunk of Atari episodes where we talked about Grand Track 10 a little bit too, though not in this level of detail. It was inspired by a pen and paper game. There was a guy named Martin Gardner that was a very famous, popular mathematician. He wrote for Scientific American. He had a weekly column where he described logic and puzzle and mathematical games. A Game of Life was one of the games that was featured in his column. He didn't create it. But Game of Life was one of the first kind of viral computer software programs, so to speak, that everyone was installing on their mainframes and mini computers. Do you know the the Game of Life? I obviously don't mean the Milton Bradley or whoever it is board game. Right. It's the one where you have a little living cell Mm -hmm. and based off of certain rules, it either lives, dies or grows and becomes something else. It actually has a bit of a resurgence these days. There's a Game of Life you can download for cell phones now. And there's people who manipulate how life works in order to create random, interesting things based off of those rules. One where it creates a rocket ship that'll launch across the screen. Mm -hmm. Some people have created life within 
life. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that works. We probably shouldn't think about it too long or we'll end up breaking the internet or something. Yeah. <laughs> it is really interesting. It still lives on today and is certainly something that is crucial for any person who is getting into programming and really wants to understand AI. This is the first step you take when you go, how do I teach a computer to do something within mm -hmm. some sort of constraint on its own? It's a very basic entry-level version of AI. Exactly. The Scientific American column that Martin Gardner wrote was the first place where that program was kind of introduced to the world. So this is a column and an author that's had some influence a couple of different times in computer and video game history. But in January 1973, he featured a game called Racetrack. What this game was is basically a pen and paper racing game where you were supposed to draw out a twisty-turny racetrack on a grid and then do vector calculations to move your car along the track and race other people that are doing the same things. Entirely a pen and paper thing. Steve Mayer, who was one of the co-founders and co-owners of Cyan Engineering, saw this racetrack game in Scientific American. This is what really made him be like, this is something that we can really do in a video game. They'd already been kind of thinking driving games was something that made sense to do next, because once the ball and paddle games hit, which were unique, there were very few analogs to that in the arcade before that, though there actually were a couple. There was a hockey game by Chicago Coin that had some similarities to a ball and paddle type game. But anyway, it was something pretty new and fresh. The next step was to figure out where do you go from there? And the logical thing is to start looking at other popular concepts in the arcade. So they were already starting to think about a driving game a little bit, but it was this article that cinched it, and he was like, this is something we can do. And it was also the layout of that game, Racetrack, that was important to what they decided to do, because the driving games that came before that, some of the slot car games might have some more twisty tracks, but your typical cellophane strip or painted barrel kind of racing game obviously is about either driving along a continuous stretch of road or driving in a circle. The idea that Grand Track had where you have an entire racetrack on the screen, it's just, it's, there's no scrolling, it's just one screen, top-down view, and then you have all of these twists and turns that you have to navigate. That came directly from Racetrack, which posited having a twisty-turny track. And of course, a twisty-turny track is what you want for a single-screen arcade game as well, because you can get more racetrack on the screen for your buck, because you can use all parts of the screen instead of just having a circle around the outside or something. So Steve Mayer did this game uh, with Ron Milner, who helped him out, and a couple other people also pitched in various parts of it. We already talked about how this game nearly destroyed Atari. So we won't talk about that part of it again, but we will talk about the technology a little bit. It was the first game with a ROM chip. It was the first game to have real memory, even though the earlier diode method was essentially a form of read-only memory as well. It was also the first game to use interlaced video. I don't know if you guys are aware how a television used to work back in the day when televisions had CRTs. But basically, in an American television, the CRT redraws the screen, and it goes line by line, top to bottom, horizontally. It redraws the screen 60 times every second. 
one sixtieth of a second, that electron gun makes a complete pass from top to bottom of the screen. U.S. television standard is 60 hertz, for instance, because it's 60 of a second. British with PAL, it's like 50. Does it one fiftieth of a second, I think, is what PAL is. So it's a, the standard's a little different. Every second, it redraws the screen 60 times. The way a regular television screen works is rather than refreshing the screen once every 60th of a second, it refreshes the screen every 30th of a second, but only draws half the screen. It draws every other line and then goes back to the top and draws the missing lines every other line. And so that's why it's called interlaced video, because you're alternating the way you do it. And what that does is it has a couple of advantages. It reduces flicker, and then it also effectively doubles the resolution that you have to play with, so it makes for a sharper image. The early video games did not do that. They just redrew the entire screen every 60th of a second instead of doing the interlacing. And the reason for that was hardware cost. It takes more hardware to tell the electron gun to do it this way instead of doing it the other way. It's a more complicated process, so you have to have more circuits in there to give those commands. What Mayer and his team discovered while they were doing Grand Track 10 is that they really needed smooth car motion. And the only way they could get that smooth car motion was in the relatively less flicker and higher resolution interlaced video rather than non-interlaced video. That game had twice the horizontal resolution of most video games at the time, which made it look a lot nicer. The other thing that is interesting about it is is it may not be the very first, but if it's not the first, it's at least one of the very first games that shipped with a monitor as opposed to a converted television. And I think we talked about this briefly in one of our other episodes. There was no such thing as a monitor business in the 1970s. Yeah, we did talk about this before. Right. Where were you going to put monitors in? People didn't have computers in their home. There was nothing that you needed a monitor for. If people had a CRT in their home, they wanted to be able to tune in channels on it. So it had a TV tuner in it, and it was called a television. There were a small number of monitors in specialized fields, some scientific fields, and in airports. Airports were probably the biggest buyers of monitors to use in their arrival departure displays. And that was pretty much it. So when the first video games came along, they had to create them with television, standard, buy off the street, Sony, Hitachi, Motorola, whatever, televisions. They would usually rip the TV tuner out. Sometimes they left it in, but normally they ripped it out because that's a part that they could even potentially recycle or sell to somebody else and created a monitor in that way. And they usually then had to wire the game directly into the antenna ports or something. I'm not an engineer. I don't know exactly where they did it, but it's not like there was an RCA jack where you could just plug into the monitor because (laughs) televisions weren't meant to accept outside inputs back then, because this is not just pre-computer and pre-video game, it's pre-VCR, so you had nothing that you were plugging into a television. The reason the Atari came with that little box that plugs into your antenna port. Exactly. Motorola was one of the first companies that realized that this arcade game thing was happening, and I think that's certainly because they're a Chicago company. So they were right at the heart of the arcade industry. So they saw when this video game boom was coming along and they were like, we can make monitors for them because they were already making monitors for like airports and whatnot. They put out a 19 inch monitor that was kind of specifically tailored to the video game industry. 
And Grand Track 10 was one of the first, if not the very first games to use that monitor. So that's the beginning of the monitor industry, which today is so huge worldwide. It really started in video games. And even more than that, it mostly started in driving games. And now it's so ubiquitous that monitors supplant television pretty much. Well, absolutely. Already, even with the very first driving game, we're seeing a lot of firsts in terms of technology. First with read-only memory, or at least semiconductor read-only memory. First with a monitor. First with interlaced video. Again, it's because that was something that was so technologically different and more advanced compared to the very early video games that you needed something extra special to make that work. So Grand Track 10 is the first driving game. It does very well after it gets over its initial problems, which we discussed in our second Atari episode. First Atari episode. One of our Atari episodes. We have many of them now. (laughs) That's true. Won't be talking about them again for a while. (laughs) At least not that incarnation of the company. (laughs) That came out in March. Kind of got delayed then because of the difficulties. Came out for real in May and did very well. And then there was a second game that came out the same year in Japan, but later in the year. That's a game called Speed Race. Speed Race was done by Taito. It was done by Toshihiro Nishikado, the same individual that would later do Space Invaders. He was basically their only video game designer in this period. Even more so than Grand Track 10, Speed Race was drawn from the old electromechanical arcade game tradition. Most of Taito's early games were. Uh, Nishikado had been a designer of electromechanical games before he started designing video games. Though he had done electrical engineering in college, so he knew how to work with that stuff. It's just he went and worked for a coin-op company, and coin-op companies didn't do much solid-state stuff. So he had not been using those skills. One of the games that he had done, or at least that Taito had done while he was there, one or the other, was a game called Super Road 7. And this was one of those kind of film strip games where you had a road that was on cellophane that was projected, rear projection game, and you had to stay on this road. It was a straight road. You had to stay on that road, and you had to avoid another car that would appear on the road as well. Speed Race is basically an exact port of that Super Road 7 in video game form. It's just a straight road. You have a car that's just positioned in the center of the road, You can move left and right, but you don't move up and down. It's just right there in the center. Grand Track was a complete control game because you're driving around a racetrack. So it had an acceleration pedal, and it had a gear shift, and it had a steering wheel. You could go all directions. This was basically just dodging left and right. And then other cars would appear that you had to avoid as you're driving down the straight road. Every time you hit a car, you crash, and then you get to start up again. But the goal of this thing was to get as far as you could within a time limit. The concept of lives did not exist in very early video games. So these early driving games were all race-against-the-clock kind of things. Even the ones where you're doing obstacle avoidance like Speed Race, it's not like hit a car three times and your game's over. It's no, you have this amount of time, you score points the longer you're moving forward, and anytime you hit something, that stops you from moving forward for a period of time and interferes with your score. So he just translated this basically one for one and created Speed Race late in 1974. People have called this the first scrolling video game. I don't really think it is. (laughs) Depends on how you define scrolling. 
See, I would define a scrolling video game as a game where you have more play field in memory than is currently appearing on the screen. And as you move, the program is being updated, whereas the blocks of scenery behind you are being moved off the screen and the next group of blocks in memory are being moved onto the screen. Mm -hmm. So you have a map, so to speak, that's off screen and then it's coming in And, and they can still be repeating areas. But the point is, is you are moving graphics in and out of memory. That's what I would consider a scrolling game personally, with the caveat that I'm not a technical guy. Right. What Speed Race really, from what I can tell, did is it just animated the elements on the screen. It's a continuous road. Nothing ever changes. The features don't change. It's not like you drive a bit and there's a tree on the side of the road. You drive a little bit more, there's a bush on the other side of the road. The scenery's constant. What they're doing is they're animating what's on the screen. And so by animating it by having different elements look differently in each frame, it gives the illusion of forward movement. But it's just cycling through an animation. It's not actually bringing new scenery in from memory. It's dancing really on the line of definition. Right. So I would not call that a scrolling game in that sense. And yeah, cars appear at the top of the screen and disappear down the bottom of the screen. But again, they're not really appearing from off screen. They're appearing at the top of the screen. They're disappearing at the bottom of the screen, but it's not like they're coming in from memory. It's not like level of Super Mario Brothers where you have a Goomba and then next you have two Goombas and, you know, they're all being brought in as you move into that part of the level. It's just elements that appear and disappear from a single screen. So it gives the illusion of forward movement, and it's the first game that gives that illusion, but it's not really scrolling. It's just animated in a way that makes it seem like you're moving. Which isn't that kind of what scrolling is? No, because scrolling implies that you are moving into a new section of something. When a screen scrolls, what's happening is that the elements that you're leaving behind are being moved out of memory or being moved out of RAM. And then the elements of the place you're moving towards are moved in moved into RAM. And so here we have a standard background, standard asset. Mm-hmm. It's more like the objects that are brought in are coming from the top, going to the bottom. And because they're going from the top to the bottom, and I guess there's no standard way they're being placed there. Right, right. So I guess... Really, the distinction here, as far as scrolling goes, is the stuff coming from the top and going to the bottom, it's almost like they're in the foreground, and because we're not dealing with objects that are in the background for as far as the scenery goes, mm-hmm. that's really what seems to be the definition of what you're implying here as far as what scrolling is, is that what the play area is, as opposed to what your right. obstacles are, right. is what's changing, and that should be what the definition of scrolling is, as opposed to what even though the objects come from the top and the bottom, and that could be arguably scrolling because yeah. I have an object coming in on the screen and leaving the bottom of the screen because the scenery, the background, what you're driving through doesn't actually change. It's static. Right. It's not really scrolling at best. It might be a hybrid between static and scrolling, but not through scrolling right. because we're and not including no, that. Nobody that considers Pong a scrolling game, but... The ball vanishes off the screen when you miss it and then reappears somewhere on the other side of the screen again. But 
Nobody considers that the ball's scrolling. It's just that it's left the screen here, and then it's told to redraw it in the starting position again to start the next volley. That's where I would make the distinction. Now, could somebody make a different distinction? Like I said, I'm not a technical guy, but probably. (laughs) But the background is not changing. The scenery is not changing. Additional graphical elements are not being paged out of ROM into RAM to appear on the screen. It really depends on how you define scrolling, but at least as far as our definition of scrolling goes, it's not really scrolling because we're not dealing with the play area, the background changing. It's static. Right. The elements are animated, and that makes it look like you're moving. But that's all on-screen elements, with emphasis being placed in different places each frame to give that sense of forward momentum. We'll put it in the show notes. You'll be able to see what I'm talking about. Kind of reminds me of those racing games on those LED handhelds, the... uh... Right. Tiger right. Electronics. Absolutely. Or or Mattel before that. Mattel Electronics, you know, Mattel had, and had Tiger. the very first so ones. Now that's arguable whether or not that's truly scrolling. Right. Exactly. There's an illusion of movement. There's no doubt that there's an illusion of movement. Yeah, scrolling, I don't know. But that's probably enough on, on Speed Race. So it's, it's, <laughs> no, it's an interesting digression, though. I, I appreciate that. So Speed Race comes to the United States as well in 1975. It comes out as wheels through Midway. And it does very well. Grand Track does like 10,000 units. Wheels does like 7,000 units. So these are already some of the biggest arcade video games in the very early days. From the very beginning, driving games are a very important part of what's going on. The next kind of big evolution in driving games is really driven by the microprocessor coming in. There are a couple other driving games that come out before the microprocessor, but the microprocessor allows for an extra level of smoothness in the graphics and in the animation because you're able to execute so much in software. The microprocessor can do calculations to do things now rather than having to run a bunch of circuits to approximate something. It gets to the point where any more circuits on a board and that board's going to be so ginormous it cracks in half and then nobody's happy. So microprocessor reduces all of that calculating down into software and allows you to do a little more. Racing games are one of the very first places that this is applied. The very first microprocessor game was not a racing game. That was Gunfight, which was a one-on-one dueling game I think we've talked about before. But they very soon after were applied to the racing games. And one of the interesting things that this allowed was the first move into a three-dimensional perspective. We're not talking 3D graphics. We're not talking polygons. We're not talking about an actual Z-axis. But using two-dimensional elements in such a way that it appears 3D. Driving games were once again leading the way with this. And it was actually an adaptation of a German game. There was a guy in Germany named Reiner Forrest. He was a, a doctor of engineering. And he really wanted to create a realistic driving simulator, driving training simulator kind of thing. We're talking the early 1970s here. That was a pretty tall order for the early 1970s, to do it at a reasonable cost. I mean, you have high-tech, fancy-schmancy military simulators of some kind, I'm sure, but doing that at a, a decent cost, that's very difficult. He decided the best way to raise money for what he was doing and the way to kind of get a handle on this technology was to do a game first, because This is the period of time, as we discussed, that the driving games are becoming very big in the arcade. So he started out, the very first version was some kind of light bulb display. I don't know how this was used. 
don't believe there are any images of this or any that have come forward that survive. So I don't know how he was using light bulbs. My guess is the way this game worked is you basically had these little markers on either side of the screen, and those markers would move forward, and they would kind of create the outline of a road. So you weren't actually, it was first person, but you weren't actually displaying any graphics except for these kind of outlines of a road. So my guess is that he had like a row of light bulbs in there, and they were probably smaller light bulbs, not like you put in your lamp, more like what you put in a Christmas tree. He probably had these smaller light bulbs that would light up in various sequences to create the outline of the road that he had to drive down. I assume that's how it worked. There are no surviving remnants of this light bulb system, as far as I know. Once Pong came out, he realized, okay, well, this will be a lot easier to do with a monitor. (laughs) Yeah, just a wee bit. So he did the same thing with a monitor. You had these little rectangles, little white rectangles. They would undulate in the patterns of the road or whatever, and they would create these these outlines of a road that you're driving down. You had to use your steering wheel to stay on it, all of that good stuff. The difference between this and something like Speed Race or Grand Track is that both of those games were top-down racers. This was first person, as if you were behind the wheel of an actual car. There aren't really many graphical elements to indicate that part of it, but it's just the view is a first-person view. And so he made a couple of these in Germany. They came to the attention of a couple of different American companies that discovered these units out on location when they had techs out servicing their other equipment and were like, well, look at this weird game. So there are actually three different companies that came out with versions of it. Uh, Digital Games, a guy named Ted Mitchin, or Mickon, I'm not sure how he pronounces it, M-I-C-H-O-N, saw the game when he was on a service call in Germany and informed his superiors about it, and they decided to do a version of it. Midway learned about the game and decided to do a version of it. Atari actually learned about the game. I think they, le- they may have learned about it through digital games, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. And they decided to do a version of it, all in the United States. Digital Games was the first one to do it. They did it in 75, so they did it a little bit before the microprocessor was coming in. Atari and Midway released their versions in 1976. So their versions actually used a microprocessor, which made it work so much better because my understanding, again, I'm not sure anyone's ever shown any footage or discovered the Night Racer version that Digital Games did. But my understanding is that by using a microprocessor, the animation on this was much smoother and much nicer. And so you really got a pretty good sense of speed and movement out of this game. And they put a little drawing, a little animation, well, not animation, a little drawing of the front of a car kind of on the cabinet. It wasn't part of the graphics that were being generated by the game. It was just there to give you something that was you. And then all that the game actually rendered was these little white rectangles that outline the road. Of course, we'll put this game in the show notes too, so you can see how that worked. And it allowed them to create a sense of speed that was pretty exhilarating while also having a first-person view, which is just something that wasn't done at that time, really. So that was kind of the next wrinkle. It, It wasn't as big a hit as your Grand Tracks and your wheels, your speed race and whatnot, because this was a period of time when Most arcade games weren't doing as big a business, but it was still a successful enough game, and three different companies released versions of it. So that's kind of, again, the driving games being one of the real showcases for the new technology, this case, the microprocessor. I wouldn't say that driving games were that important 
on the first generation of programmable consoles. There were driving games, of course, on those consoles. But I think in some ways, the Atari VCS especially was just really too primitive to do much of an exciting job with any kind of driving game. Yeah, two objects and a paddle or a ball. Yeah. And so it had some driving games, but a little rough. In the arcade, though, during the Golden Age, the driving game continues to be one of the main showcases for new technology. And kind of the next thing that really takes the driving game forward is sprite scaling. Again, not the first games that necessarily had sprite scaling, but certainly some of the very first popular games. So sprite scaling, as it implies, is where you render an object multiple times in various sizes and then seamlessly switch between each of these sprites in sequence in order to give the illusion that something is starting out far away and coming closer to you, or vice versa. Again, this is something that really had to wait for the microprocessor to have the kind of processing power to be able to rapidly switch between all of these different sprite states. Sega is the first company that really has a game that that does that. In 1981, they release a game called Turbo. Most people, when they think of this kind of setup, they think of pole position which Namco released the the next year. I'm sure you've probably seen Pole Position in your day. No, I haven't. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a huge game in the arcade in 1982. Uh, I mean, absolutely huge, 82, 83, which I realize is a little before our time, but it's one of those games that lingered for a long time after that in conversions and whatnot. I know I played it on my aunt and uncle's Atari 7800. Both Turbo and Pole Position moved out of first person. They, they weren't first person like Night Driver, but they established a view, what's kind of called the rear racing view, where the camera is positioned right behind the back of your car. And so it's still a forward scrolling thing where it feels like you're driving into the screen. It's just not first person. Turbo used this new sprite scaling technology to give the illusion that there are other cars on the path with you and and you're passing them because there's a small sprite out in the distance, and then that swapped in with one that's slightly bigger, then one that's slightly bigger, then one that's slightly bigger, then one that's slightly bigger, until you have the car right next to you, and it's the same size as you. So it gives this illusion that you're moving forward down a track, and that there's other objects coming towards you. These transitions were often very jarring in a way. The transition point where it went from one sprite to another would just be all of a sudden, oh, it's bigger. Yes. Oh, it's bigger. Oh, it's bigger. And how it would work is, at least in my experience, you'd have like two, maybe three positions where the thing's moving closer to you. Then there's this transition point where it goes over a line and all of a sudden it's bigger. It gets closer to your car further down the screen. Then it hits another transition point and it's bigger. Mm-hmm. But it's not a smooth scaling. It's a literal, you have two, maybe three sizes you have and that's it. Sure. On some of those games, that's true. And and this all comes down to memory. How much memory you have to store various sprites, and then how much processing power you have to be able to switch between them rapidly. So in some of the arcade games, it can be a little bit smoother than, say, some of the early console games like the NES or whatever, when you don't have nearly as much power in order to, to right. make My those transitions. My favorite racing game originally on the NES is a game called Mock Rider. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. It's a motorcycle racing game, and it had that same effect where you could see things out in the distance, and they'd come towards you, but it would get bigger at certain transition points. And these were really demarked by lines on the screen. You could mm. really see them like, oh, yeah, once it goes over that line, it's bigger. Things got real. That's right. And as I said, some of the arcade games, it was a little less jarring than that. Of course, we'll put some examples of all of these in the show notes. But right, you could tell that things were suddenly getting bigger, but it was still much better than anything that existed before that. This is really what allowed sprite scaling is what really allowed forward motion games to work. Mm-hmm. And kind of gave you this this pseudo 3D feel to the world, even though everything was entirely a, a two-dimensional sprite-based object. Right. And as games progress, that scaling, how often they do that, gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where it becomes a smooth transition. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, as we said, just down to more RAM and more processing power <laughs> is, is kind of the, the trick there. So Definitely. Mm-hmm. So Turbo's a somewhat big hit, but Pole Position is the phenomenal hit. Atari licenses it. It's one of the few licensed games that Atari does in this period. It's a Namco game initially. Pole Position is one of the best-selling games of 1983. Now, as our frequent listeners will recall, 1983 was definitely very much a down year for the arcade. So being one of the biggest games of 1983 doesn't mean you're biggest Pac-Man. <laughs> no. But it did all right for itself. It sold in the tens of thousands of units and was a big hit, ported to consoles, and kind of continued the primacy of racing games throughout the early arcade period. There were always at least one or two big racing games around that were selling a bunch of units. And some of these things had legs. Sega did their own take on Speed Race in 1979 called Monaco GP. It was the same kind of obstacle avoidance thing where you're going down a straight road, but this one actually did incorporate real scrolling because the terrain actually changed. The road would narrow and widen. You would go through sections with different terrain where it might be slicker. There were night driving sections where you would suddenly just have a little headlight path illuminated in front of you and the rest of the screen was dark. So this one actually transitioned between different types of terrain, and it was a very fast game. It had even a greater sense of speed than Speed Race did, because it's coming out five years later. You know, the technology's better. Monaco GP remained on the Operator Poll's bestsellers list for, like, a decade. It was insane. Now, not number one, obviously. Later on in its life, it was usually lower down the list. But Monaco GP... But it was still there. But it was still there for, like, over a decade. It is... The longest running charting game, (laughs) video game in the history of the arcades. And it's a driving game because a driving game is something that always has appeal. It does. Go to any arcade that's still around now, Dave and Buster's, maybe some sort of local laser tag arcade thing, Mm -hmm. Chuck E. Cheese, if you got there, you will see racing games there. They will probably be ones from the 90s. Yeah. But they still hold up. Yep. They really do. That's why a game like Monaco GP can do so well and why so many of these other games that even if they don't last quite lo- as long, there's always something big. And when Coleco was designing the ColecoVision, Eric Bromley, who was in charge of that process, when it came time to start figuring out what games they were going to license for their system because they knew that they were going to focus on arcade licenses to sell the system, he decided 
that the very first two games he would go after were Sega's games, Zaxxon and Turbo. And the reason for that is that at that time, those were two of the most impressive technological games in the arcade. Zaxxon, we've talked about before, it's the isometric shooting game, and Turbo, which we just talked about. Those were two of the most advanced games technically, and so he knew that if Turbo and Zaxxon were two of the launch titles for ColecoVision, it would show people that, yes, the ColecoVision really can do anything that's currently in the arcade and bring it home in a near-perfect translation, because it does Turbo and Zaxxon. It wasn't the system seller. It wasn't bundled with it. Donkey Kong's the game that was the big hit. But again, using a racing game to show off the technology of your hardware. So Turbo and Pole Position basically represent the state of the art in racing games at the time the entire industry collapses on us. This idea that you've got the illusion of 3D with the forward scrolling movement, you've got kind of the standard camera position established now, because even today, most racing games are not first person. Most of them put you right behind the back of your car because it's a better way to do it with a single television screen because first person, you can't tilt your head side to side to look out the window when you just have a single television screen in front of you. One of these days, we'll probably have gigantic wraparound screens and then people will do that. And there actually have been a couple of arcade games that use a multiple monitor setup to try to fill your entire peripheral vision with a racing game. But first person doesn't work very well because you don't have the ability to easily look side to side or behind which you kind of need in a first-person perspective. With the rear-view racing camera, you can see around you, you can see when cars are coming up next to you. So we've got the standard camera angle established. We've got the standard kind of scaling technology that's used, and and that's really the state of the art of the business. So now that we've kind of got the graphical side and the presentation side figured out, obviously graphics will only continue to improve higher resolution, etc. Now we can start having some fun with the player's controls. Driving games have always been one of the more easily customizable kind of special control setups because they have special controls. You use a steering wheel and brakes to drive a real car. You have automatic and manual transmission. Mm -hmm. So you need to have a gear shift. You need to have something to disengage the clutch if you're doing manual. Right, so these games already lend themselves to having their own specialized controls. Most of the time, in a game like a Space Invaders or an Asteroids or whatnot, people weren't spending a bunch of time coming up with custom controls to make it feel like you're really driving a spaceship because those spaceships didn't exist. So they just used basic joystick and button control schemes most of the time. But with cars all along, with driving games, you were simulating those actual car elements. Now it's time to move beyond just the controls and to the full body experience. And this is something that is really done at Sega. Really, the majority of the arcade industry from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s is driven by the rivalry between Sega and Namco. Sega had long been the biggest arcade company in Japan, arcade manufacturer. Taito was number two. Namco was a pretty distant number three. In the Golden Age, that power really shifted. Taito had a massive hit with Space Invaders, but they never really followed that up effectively. So even though 
for a time, they were on top of everybody. They really start fading. Namco rides Pac-Man, an even bigger hit than Space Invaders. And then some of these other games like Pole Position and Galaxian and whatnot that they also did at the same time. They were not just a one-hit wonder. To become the other big company in Japan alongside Sega. And then they get on the Famicom really early, and they make so much money making Famicom games, and they can pour a lot of that back into the arcade side of the business too. So Taito kind of fades out a little bit here. It's still one of the big three, but it's just not at the cutting edge technologically anymore. Sega and Namco are really starting to compete with each other for who can put out the biggest and best arcade games. So it's Sega a guy named Yu Suzuki, who has been with the company a couple of years, decides that he really wants to one-up Pole Position. Sega did Turbo, and then Pole Position just left Turbo in the dust. We'll put them up side-by-side in the show notes, not literally necessarily, but you can click on each of them to see. Turbo, in terms of the speed of it, in terms of the controls of it, in terms of the color scheme of it, it's just nothing next to Pole Position. And so Yu Suzuki who is very much into cars and very much into speed and and fast, flashy things as a person, really wants to beat pole position. He wants to show these upstarts at Namco that Sega is still king of the world when it comes to these arcade games. So he decides to do a motorcycle game called Hang On. Instead of just having you have a handlebar controller on the cabinet or something that you're steering or whatever, He creates a full-body experience cabinet where you are actually sitting on a mock-up of a motorcycle, and you are tilting your whole body left and right on that motorcycle as you take curves and turns. A full-body, what the Japanese call a Taikan, T-A-I-K-A-N, I think, Taikan cabinet, where it's a full-motion, full experience with force feedback on the handlebars and with all this movement and crazy stuff. A very immersive experience. And again, driving games lend themselves to this so well, because driving is an activity that is familiar enough to enough people. Even kids, though they're obviously not driving cars, they may be driving go-karts, they're riding bicycles. I mean, they're doing some kind of vaguely steering driving motion, even in their daily lives, even before they have driver's license. Right. They have the ubiquitous little red car with a yellow top that many kids play with as a kid. Right. So it's an activity that's already a very familiar activity. It's an easy one to turn into this kind of full-body experience thing without being too jarring, without throwing off the individual too much. It's a great kind of gateway into that kind of thing. So they do Hang On in 1985. That is a pretty darn big hit, both in Japan and the United States, and in Europe as well. The next thing that Yu Suzuki wants to do, though, is he wants to do a game about the joy of driving. Driving games tend to be racing games. You're either racing other opponents or you're racing on a set track against a clock. What Yu Suzuki wants to do is a game that is just about hitting the open road and just driving. He's influenced particularly by a movie called The Cannonball Run that starred Burt Reynolds this kind of cross-country race kind of movie. And he wants to create a game where you are kind of driving across the United States. It's kind of like the Drivemobile game we talked about before, except in Drivemobile, like we said, the scenery never changes. It's just that, that you're pretending that you're moving across the map. He wanted something that had 
a gradual change of scenery as you continue to drive so that it actually feels like you're driving through all these environments. Well, he goes to the United States to do some research and realizes that the United States isn't very good for this. And the reason for that is how much does our scenery change? Not that often. That's right. You live in the Midwest. How much interesting scenery is there as we drive through Missouri and Illinois and Indiana and Iowa and all of these places? Well, there's some corn. There's some more corn. Oh, look, wheat today. Right. So he decided that the U.S. wasn't really good for this. So he shifted the focus to Europe instead. He did a trip across Europe where he was filming and taking in different types of scenery, having a grand old time. The game that comes out of this is a game called Outrun. In Outrun, you're driving a Ferrari Testarossa because in Yu Suzuki's mind, he's a real Ferrari enthusiast. That is just the coolest car. And it is a cool car. I mean, I'm not a car. I'm not a gearhead. I'm not a car guy. But as far as cars go, Ferrari's a pretty cool car. It's popular. Obviously, it's uh, an arcade game, so you still have to regulate play. You're still driving against a time limit or whatever. But it's not about the racing. It's not about the competing. It's you're in this Ferrari, and the graphic on the screen shows this pretty girl sitting in the seat next to you. And you've got a radio. It actually has three songs in the soundtrack, and you can choose your radio station You know, for which of the three songs you want. So it's all about kind of recreating this idea that you're peeling off down the road with your best girl at your side, the wind in your hair, the music's playing on the radio, and you're just driving across Europe because you have all these scenery changes. And of course, the full body cabinet experience again with the car shifting around on the turns and whatnot, just to make it feel the pure exhilaration of driving. Full stop. Outrun is is a huge hit. It does over 20,000 units. And in 1986, when the arcade is starting to turn around, but is still not what it was in the Golden Age, 20,000 plus units, that is fantastic. It's a whole new level. Both Hang On and Outrun both are a whole new level of scaling technology. It's on this hardware called Superscaler that Sega makes that is specifically designed to do this sprite scaling stuff and do it quickly and smoothly and seamlessly. And it's just a game that feels so good, and it's it's the epitome of what the arcade should be, because that's an experience you'll never be able to get in a home console. Well, I shouldn't say never, maybe someday in the future, but this full-body experience. It's not just that the graphics were, of course, much better than what you could do on a console at the time. It's just the full-body experience of that game was something truly unique to the arcade and was something that resonated very well. So during this time period, they're racing games on the NES... you've got your mock rider problem. (laughs) Yep. The NES doesn't necessarily do that kind of thing well. So there are racing games that do fairly decently. Rad Racer from Square does okay. RC Pro-Am from Rare does pretty well. One of the first games that has uh, weapons as well because it's remote control cars. So it's a little more fantastical and it feels like you can stick weapons in there. But really the arcade is, is the premier place for the racing games in this time period. Now, the one area that we've not been talking about is home computers. Home computers were also home to some racing games. The track was often a little bit different because the computers don't necessarily have the capability to output the pure speed that the arcade does so well. The audience there often craves a little more realism in their product. And so you start to see a kind of racing simulation genre begin to develop on home computers. And really, the first game that does that well 
actually comes out of the United Kingdom, and I don't think it really comes to the U.S. This is a pretty British-specific phenomenon. That's a game called Revs by a programmer named Jeff Crammond. Jeff Crammond was a little older than a lot of the guys getting involved in this early days in the British industry. We're talking 84 here when that game came out. As we discussed in our British episodes, you had this kind of bedroom coder community that was doing a lot of the work. It was teenagers, largely, that were making a lot of the games. Crammond was a professional programmer with Marconi, so he was working on the big mainframes and Fortran and whatnot. He got interested when these micros started coming out and thought that that would be interesting to try to do some kind of simulation on. First thing he wanted to do was a flying simulation. It wasn't the first game he released, but it did end up being the second game he released was a flying simulation that tried to be as realistic as possible under the circumstances of the time. Then in 1984, he does this game, Revs. It's a first-person kind of setup, unlike the rear-view games. It's a scaling game, like your pole position kind of thing, in terms of the, the sprites and whatnot. But he actually creates real 3D courses in terms of the physics in a pole position. Sometimes they use graphical tricks when you're on a curve to make it look like the, the curve is a little ramped on one side or whatever. But it's never calculating the physics in anything but two dimensions. There is no road height variance at all. It's just flat. Revs is probably the first racing game that actually took into account differing road heights. So if, if you're on the bank of a turn, that's actually a different height, and, and the physics engine's calculating that. So this is kind of the beginning of the idea of let's represent the physics of racing a little more accurately. This is really not something you see so much in the arcades. I mean, the arcades have a basic level of fidelity to the physics, but they're all just about maximum speed and adrenaline and, and rush. They're not about, let's make the cars behave realistically, let's make the road behave realistically, because then you start losing some of that pure speed because you have to start being careful on turns and such. Because turns out, with real cars, you can't just go 300 miles an hour and take every turn perfectly. But I like my racing game where I can put the pedal to the metal and just hold on tight, turn left, turn right. And so do a lot of other people, which is why those games are always popular and often more popular. But this is kind of the beginning of the racing simulation genre, and there are very few entrants in this genre, quite frankly, on the whole. Jeff Cramman keeps doing games like this. He does a series of Formula One games in the early 90s that are very well regarded. There's a company called Papyrus in the United States that starts creating very realistic simulations in the late 80s on computers. So you kind of have this home computer thing going on. It's never as big on home computer, but this racing simulation thing. But we kind of have to lay that groundwork because we're going to be coming back to that in a big way in just a few minutes here. When we come to the Super Nintendo, when we come to the 16-bit systems, we're now getting to home systems that have enough raw power to do a pretty decent racing game. Hello, F0. That's right. And we have hardware we want to show off again. And in the case of the Super Nintendo specifically, the hardware mode we want to show off is Mode 7. Mode 7 is life. Mode <laughs> 7 for all. Mode 7 for us. And of course, what Mode 7 is, is the ability to scale and rotate the background, which is something that really hadn't been possible on consoles before, at least not easily, <laughs> if at all. So Nintendo created this game, F-Zero, as a launch title 
because they wanted to show that they could create big levels, big spaces. They wanted to show that they could move things fast in these big spaces. And they wanted to show that they could do all of these crazy rotational effects using this Mode 7. Mode 7, for a lot of the launch titles for the Super Nintendo, was highly touted. Mm -hmm. The big ones you had are F-Zero, Super Mario World, which used a lot of Mode 7, but not so much the rotational part of it. Right. And you had Castlevania 4, which really shows off everything from both of the previous two games in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And you also have Pilot Wings is kind of the other big launch title that was really focused on the scaling and rotation in Mode 7. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Castlevania 4 is, is a tangent from driving games, but Castlevania 4 is certainly the best look at what Mode 7 could do for an action game. Because they did some crazy rotational stuff in the castle <laughs> in yeah. Castlevania 4. Stuff that you never see really played out again in any other game in a system except for maybe bits and pieces of it in end of the life of the console game. Most Konami people knew what they were doing. They did. Then when it came to racing games, F-Zero was certainly the game that that showed that off the best. So then a couple years later, you've done F-Zero. F-Zero does pretty well. F-Zero is a single-player game. So what's the logical thing to do for a sequel? Two people. That's right. So let's have two people in F-Zero. Just one problem. The hardware may be pretty good hardware compared to an NES, but... It's not so good a hardware that you can have split screen and have those massive levels. It doesn't work with the hardware. So in order to do a two-player version, they're going to have to have much smaller levels. But once you have much smaller levels, you can't have that same level of speed. You can't have that same zipping around because it'll be over too fast. So we can't do futuristic, hyper-fast racing pods anymore. We need something that moves a little slower, a little more leisurely. Something like, uh, I don't know, what do you think, Jeff? I like go-karts. They're slow. That's right. So we're going to do two-player F-Zero, but on smaller courses and with go-karts. Because you don't have to have that same sense of top speed. So they go in and they create some maps and they put some go-karts on them and they have these uh, racing guys on these go-karts and and that's all fine. There's just one problem. All these guys on these go-karts from the back, they all look alike. It's it's hard to tell people apart. I mean, obviously you can get people different colors or whatever. Red guy, blue guy, purple guy, green guy. Right, but, but they all look alike. And so the team gets to thinking, we need a character that would be instantly recognizable just by looking at their back. What do we have that could do that? How about Alex? I I don't think they knew who I was. I'm not sure I'm that distinct from the back either. What about Bob? What about Mario? Nah, we don't own him. (laughs) But we're Nintendo. Of course we own him. Oh, right. So if we had Mario, that means I could use Bowser and Donkey Kong. Peach, and that toad thing, and the crazy Koopa, and that dinosaur thing I was just bouncing around on in that other game. That's right. And so this is how we get from, let's do a two-player version of F-Zero, to let's do Super Mario Kart. The glorious, glorious racing game that we all love and adore, and spawned nine, ten, have lost count games. 
But this being Nintendo, it's never quite that simple. When Miyamoto, who's in charge of development, you know, Miyamoto is not the direct developer of Mario Kart, but he's overseeing all the projects. When Miyamoto hears all of this, he's like, yeah, that's a good idea, but let's not make it just be about the driving. Let's make this be a fun game where everyone feels like they can compete, even if they're not as good a driver. And so they put in the weapons. We like the weapons. <laughs> Shields up, weapons online. That's right. Launch a bunch of green turtle shells at the enemy. <laughs> That's how you get Mario Kart. That's how you get the kart racer, which of course remains uh, a very popular genre even outside the even outside of Mario. There aren't quite as many of those released, but in their heyday, every franchise had their kart racer. Donkey Kong had its Donkey Kong Country had its kart racer. Crash Bandicoot had its kart racer. Sega had its kart racer. Sonic and whatnot. That's kind of how this additional genre of driving game gets going. And of course, Mario Kart is a huge hit. That brings us to kind of the final phase that we're going to talk about in this episode. And that's the transition out of 2D and into 3D. True polygonal 3D graphics. In this case, it starts really with Atari. Atari, in the early 1980s, is kind of the one arcade company that can really afford to do all sorts of crazy pie-in-the-sky kind of research and development kind of stuff because they're part of Warner Communications. They're part of this big company. So they've always got research projects going on, R&D stuff going on, not just with the home, but also with the arcade. In the tail end of the Golden Age, they actually created a very complicated 3D polygonal hardware system that was kind of expensive and finicky and, and created a platforming game for it called iRobot that didn't do very well. People weren't ready <laughs> for that kind of 3D stuff. And it was a bad time in the arcade 1984. So it kind of sank out of sight. But this idea of doing some kind of 3D system didn't die with iRobot. And there was a guy named Rick Moncrief or Mon Monchief. I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced, who was in charge of a group called the Support Engineering Group within Atari's coin-op. And basically their job was to continue to refine hardware for continuing next-generation kind of products. What he was really working on during the Golden Age was vector hardware technology. It was his team that was taking their vector monitor that they had created back in 78, 79, and moving it forward, adding color to it, continuing to develop that. Once the crash hit and Atari was being pared down, Coinop was not completely buzzsawed quite the same way Consumer was, of course, but everyone's feeling the burn, obviously. He decides to salvage what he can, and he leaves the support engineering group and tries to pull together certain individuals from within Atari's divisions into kind of this advanced R&D. They, they weren't called an advanced R&D group, but they were essentially an advanced R&D group to kind of put together uh, an advanced project. One of the guys that he pulled in was a guy named Max Behinsky, who was actually out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in another Atari R&D lab out there. And they had gotten some haptic feedback, force feedback, control stuff going. And so he brought this guy in, and they kind of formed this team where they were going to create a realistic driving simulator with force feedback and polygonal graphics with the aim of breaking into the simulator market. They weren't thinking of this as a game at that point. They wanted to break into the high-end simulator and training market is actually what they wanted to do with this. 
turns out that that market wasn't interested in this. When they thought of driving simulators, they were thinking of these big systems where everyone is sitting at these individual stations and following the film strip on the screen. You remember those, don't you, Jeff? Yeah. They left a lot to be desired. They were a joke. any kind of feedback. I don't know if what I'm doing is actually making a difference. I don't know how much this particular car turns left or right with how much I move. I don't have any idea if this is even power steering or not. Heck, I don't even know if these brakes work. Well, you know, one thing that I discovered very early on is, in our specific simulator at our school, is that the simulator checked to make sure that you had stopped before a stop sign, that the car was no longer moving. But it didn't really care if your car was moving the entire time it was supposed to be driving. So I would come to a complete stop well before the stop sign. That way you made sure that it didn't ding you for failure to stop because it didn't ding you for failure to go. Hmm. So I would just come to a complete stop the moment the stop sign showed up in the distance and then I never got dinged by the simulator. But that kind of thing was considered the future of driving simulators at that point, not polygonal graphics like what Atari was doing. Sad, so they, sad times. Yeah. So they realized they had to ch- turn around and make it a game. They couldn't go for the simulator market anymore. That necessitated a long development process and a lot of learning how to put together a polygonal system that made sense for an arcade environment in terms of the cost and durability and whatever else. This was really the first group that was focusing on getting polygonal graphics into the arcade in a real way. And of course, the way they were doing it was through a driving game. And that game ended up being released as Hard Driving in 1989. The graphics are pretty primitive. The polygons are certainly not textured or shaded. It's just basic geometric shape kind of polygons. But it's real three-dimensional racing. They were actually beaten to market by one year by a Namco product called Winning Run. That product was probably derived, though, from hard driving. We haven't established the direct links yet. may recall from our Atari brand episode that in 1985, Namco purchased Atari. Mm -hmm. Namco owned Atari all the way till early 1987, and Masaya Nakamura, founder and president of Namco, was the chairman of the board of Atari Games until the middle of 1988, even after they were independent. Hard Driving took a long time to make. Even though it was released in 1989, they started making it back in like 1985. So Atari's working on this 3D system the entire time that they're owned by Namco. Someone's going to notice. So my guess is that the Atari technology ended up being the basis for Namco's first 3D system as well, their System 21 hardware. And that they both essentially spring from the same source. I think that's probably true. But we don't have the direct proof of that as of yet. Regardless, the the original Namco board, the System 21, wasn't that great a board. It was very kludgy. It was very difficult and somewhat limited. I mean, it could do polygonal graphics, but it was still somewhat limited. The big shift to polygonal graphics in the arcade really occurred when both Sega and Namco made deals with high-end military simulation companies in the early 1990s to co-develop 3D hardware with them. And this was something that was made possible by the end of the Cold War. In the 1980s, 
the military industrial complex and the defense complex in the United States grew at an enormous rate. There had kind of been a period of detente in the 70s. And then when Reagan came into office, he started posturing more aggressively against the Soviet Union again. And the Cold War got a lot more tense than it had been in a long time. And Reagan really built up the military. So there was a lot of money being made in military projects in the 1980s. Now the Cold War is over. And all of these defense contractors that built up all of this capability during the last phase of the Cold War suddenly were facing massive defense budget cuts as the U.S. military wound down a little bit from its Cold War levels and needed to figure out new projects. Well, lo and behold, here's this 3D thing. Mm-hmm. So arcade companies were able to make these deals with these defense contractors, and that kind of pushed the 3D stuff really forward, both for Sega and for Namco. And of course, again, what did they do to showcase this new hardware? They did driving games. Namco's very first game, we already talked about winning run, driving game. Sega's very first polygonal experiment was a game called Virtual Racer. And Virtual Racer was basically just a glorified tech demo. I mean, it was very bare bones. It's Yu Suzuki doing it again, because Yu Suzuki is the great technologist at Sega and the great racing lover at Sega. Again, they're using polygonal graphics to showcase their new hardware. And then that Namco-Sega competition kind of kicks in again, because now the race is on between the two of them to deliver the first racing game and the first polygonal game that actually has textured polygons. For those that don't know, when we talk about polygonal graphics, we're basically just talking about graphics that are rendered as a series of triangles. Triangles are the most commonly used. You can technically use other shapes, but everyone basically uses triangles. We're basically just talking about triangles that are drawn in such a way as to give the illusion of depth and the illusion of 3D. And so each one of these triangles represents a face or a surface on your object. The more triangles you draw, the more polygons you draw, the more realistic your object looks. looks, the smoother it looks. Basically, all of these polygons are just all of these individual surfaces on your model. By default, it's just a flat monochrome surface. What you can do then at that point is basically do sprite art on top of your polygon. You create a texture, which is a two-dimensional drawing. It's, it's more like your bitmap or sprite-based art of days past. And then you create a texture of a certain resolution, and then you tell your computer program, I want this texture to attach to this surface, I want this texture to attach to that surface, and that's how you get a three-dimensional object that actually looks like something instead of just being a solid block or a solid blob like a Star Fox or a Virtua Racer. Mm -hmm. By the early 90s, both Sega and Namco were ready to take that next step and actually do textured polygons. And so they are competing against each other to be first. And again, they choose a racing game to do this. So Namco does Ridge Racer and Sega does Daytona USA. Both are massive hits, but Daytona USA is the bigger of the two hits. It is a massive, massive hit, especially because they create the cabinets in such a way that you can link them together and have up to eight people, if the arcade has a full setup, race together in their individual cabinets. Again, not the first game to do that. Namco actually had some games that did that previously. But this was kind of the big combination of polygons and textures and multiplayer networking, just really the high point of the arcade racer. This thing raked in the dough. 
And again, it's the racing game serving as the showpiece for new technology. In the console world, we're also moving towards the 3D stuff. Sony, with the PlayStation, is going to need a big racing game to help sell their new console. And they license Ridge Racer. Ridge Racer is a game that comes out for the console and does very well on the console. But they also have something internal going on at Cygnosis, which they have just bought in Britain. And at Cygnosis, there's a guy named Nick Burcombe. Nick Burcombe has a co-worker named Jim Bowers who way back in the day had been working on this kind of tactical strategy game using these kind of futuristic ship kind of things. Nick Burcombe was very drawn to this kind of art style and aesthetic. So he kind of filed that away. And then Mario Kart hit. And he was huge into Mario Kart. He just loved the game to death, as so many people did. There was a particular highlight for him. One time he was playing the game, and he had the sound off. And instead of the Mario Kart music playing, he had some trance music playing, a form of electronic dance music. He had some trance music playing. He kind of entered into his zone, and it felt like the trance music was peaking and falling back at the same time he was peaking and falling back, and he just got in the zone, and he won the race, and he, like, crossed the finish line, like, right at the crescendo of the piece of music, and it just felt, like, amazing to him. A religious experience. Exactly. He got this idea. Let's take this, these kind of futuristic ship kind of things that Bowers created. Let's put it in a Mario Kart-like setting where we have these race courses and we have these weapons and all of that, and then let's put a trance soundtrack to it and just have it be really, really fast and the music really, really pumping. Let's make that a game. And of course, this is Wipeout. The importance of Wipeout to the PlayStation cannot be overstated, particularly in Europe. PlayStation has been a strong brand in Europe ever since the first PlayStation, even in the PS3 days when the Xbox 360 was doing so well in the United States, it wasn't dominating nearly as much in Europe because that brand is just so strong in Europe. Wipeout was a big part of that. It was the best-selling game on the console at launch, as we mentioned. But it was also a big part of the shift in the marketing of the PlayStation. The NES was marketed six to 12-year-olds. The Genesis was marketed to teenagers. Sony wanted to get a more adult crowd and a more mainstream crowd interested in the PlayStation. They felt that the graphics and the gameplay elements had developed enough that a more mainstream and more sophisticated older audience would be able to appreciate it as well. It's not just cartoon characters bouncing on turtle shells. Not that this sophisticated at all finds anything wrong with that. Yes. (laughs) We shall be taking our blue turtle shell and launching it at the enemy forthwith. (laughs) Sony in Europe really marketed heavily into the club scene. This was a period of time when electronic music, techno, trance, whatever, was really popular and dance clubs were focusing on this kind of thing. And they really wanted to get into the club scene because that was the hip, cool, trendy scene. And they thought that if they could get people in that scene interested in the video game system, that would help them become a mainstream success. And so here's Wipeout, which is taking the music of that scene as its soundtrack. So Wipeout was a huge part of marketing, particularly in Europe. It helped sell that system to that older audience. Without Wipeout, 
that system does not do nearly as well, particularly in Europe, as it ended up doing. Big game. Of course, the other big game on the PlayStation is Gran Turismo. And this is kind of the high point of simulation. Simulation has mostly been done on the computer to this point. But Kazunori Yamauchi, no relation to Hiroshi Yamauchi of, of Nintendo, he really appreciates the ability of the PlayStation to provide realistic physics and realistic handling. He's assigned to do a kart racer for the PlayStation, because everyone's got to have a kart racer at this point. Mario Kart's become so huge. But even when he's doing this kart racer, which was released in Japan only, the sequel was released in the U.S., he tried to make the physics, the underlying engine, as realistic as he possibly could, even though it was cartoony and all of this. So when that game was finished and the sequel was finished, he decided he wanted to do something that was just hyper-realistic. Take real cars, not just analogs of cars, but license the cars, get real cars, real race courses, and have the handling be absolutely realistic, have the physics be absolutely realistic, have everything be as true to life as absolutely possible, and then turn you loose to race these cars on various tracks and then earn licenses for completing races that allow you to unlock more cars that you get to play around with and wash, rinse, repeat. And that's Gran Turismo, which is the series that is certainly the biggest and most influential and most important racing simulation series of all time. As I said at the top of the episode, Gran Turismo was the best-selling game on the PlayStation, over 10 million units sold, and the later games in the series were very successful as well. And that's really the good place to stop an episode kind of on driving games, because obviously there have been driving games since, including some very popular series like Forza Motorsport or Project Gotham Racing, etc. Mario Kart continues to be popular. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is doing very well on the Switch right now. As we kind of alluded to at the top of the episode, that was kind of the high point for racing games being the technological showcase of the system and the mover of games on a system. Since it is relatively easy to render and animate a car compared to a human being, etc., by the end of the PS2 era, or by the beginning of the PS3 era, maybe, you got to the point where you had pretty photorealistic depictions of automobiles. And you got to the point where Gran Turismo could pretty accurately render all of the little physical quirks that go on with a car. So now the exciting challenge, like we said, is something like an open world game where you've got all of these different AI factors interacting together and you've got these huge vistas and you have to have the, the good draw distance and you have to be able to render dozens or hundreds of objects at the same time. That's that's kind of what's impressive now. That's kind of what the showcase is. You look at Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto is a game that without the driving element wouldn't have gotten popular. Grand Theft Auto is not a driving game. Grand Theft Auto is an open world, explore, do all sorts of things, both on foot and in a car kind of thing. That's kind of where the excitement is now. And so while racing games are still made and many people still enjoy racing games, they're just not the same technological showcase they were when something like a Pole Position or a Daytona could be the best-selling game in the arcade or a Gran Turismo could be the best-selling game on a console. It's not something that really allows for us to demonstrate what the technology can do. What 
technology we have now, a racing game is not really the scene to show what the hardware, the technology can do. Sort of like before, fighters used to be able to push it because, hey, we can animate humans now and we can really do the articulation. Fantastic up to a point where it becomes blasé. And now with open world where we can take all of those elements that we've had before, well-animated people, well-animated sceneries and cars and vehicles and backdrops. And guardians. And guardians. <laughs> and it really starts to showcase artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. machine learning. That's really what show where technology has been going in the last bunch of years here. I'm sure it will switch to something else in five to ten years. Right. Your your technological showcase is is based on what is the most impressive thing you can do with the hardware at any given time. And for a long time, driving games were one of the best ways to do that. And so driving games were heavily marketed and became insanely popular. Now they're still there and they still do all right, but just like fighters and beat yep. em ups and everything else. But right, in terms of being at the very top of the industry, the the industry is is in a way moved on. So while there's certainly a million other driving games out there, there's not too much added benefit to talking about any of those, particularly since we've we've probably talked enough for <laughs> one episode anyway. Well, that's okay. We can start on a entirely new topic dealing with another pioneer, something that is completely and utterly different, something involving Star, the galaxy, quite near as opposed to far, far away. <laughs> Recently got re-released in the last few years, but not really because reason. That's right. And for those that haven't figured it out from that admittedly very vague description, we are talking about Elite. We were just talking about how open world games are the big draws right now. Yep. Well, Elite is really the beginning of the open world. That is the first game of any importance. You can always find something that did something before something else, but it's the first game of any importance that went, we're going to get rid of this idea of lives. We're going to get rid of this idea of score. We're going to get rid of this idea of linear gameplay. And let's just throw you out there into the world, or in this case, the universe, and do whatever you want towards the goal of becoming the most elite person in the universe. Or you don't even have to care about the rankings. You don't even have to care about getting elite status if you don't want. You can just basically do anything you like within the confines of the game's rules. And so that was a real watershed moment. So I don't think we've ever done an episode before where we just discuss a single game. And obviously we'll go off on some tangents and no doubt talk about a few other things too, but this game that what is... we do. Because that's what we do. But this game is so important that it feels like it can sustain its own episode. So next time, let's let's do the story of Elite. Elite, next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode 
by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>